Well, Genesis 18, right? Um, that's exciting and fun. Let me turn this off. Okay, perfect. Uh, we didn't skip uh, the little negotiation part because we don't value it. It was just simply to save a little time uh, in our gathering, and it's a bit repetitive when you read it like that. But nonetheless, uh, Abraham did plead with his, uh, with his Lord for the people of Sodom, the people that were of uh, such a stench to the Lord that it provoked him to come down uh, to visit Abraham and to send two angels before him. Next uh, week will be when we tackle Sodom, and so we will, we will do that according to the scriptures. It'll be Father's Day. It'll be light and easy and just super easy to just walk away and feel encouraged and warm. Uh, but before we get there, uh, we have chapter 18 uh, to work through. It's this a bit of a, tran- a transition chapter. If you remember three weeks ago, which I know we've all slept since then, but three weeks ago, uh, we talked a lot about circumcision, right? And this, this mark of the covenant for Abraham's household. And there now we have in Genesis 18 this continuation really of what's going on. And that continuation is that the Lord would visit Abraham. What an amazing statement. There's a lot of ways that we could go with the text today, but here's where I think we should go, and that is, what do we do with a God that is unpredictable? Better yet, what do you do with a God who doesn't do what you want him to do, when you want him to do it, according to the pace and the place and the people with which you want him to do it? The Abrahamic covenant, as you know, has really been the thing that has shaped our time the last few weeks. God's promise to Abraham of land and descendants and to be a blessing from God and have that blessing be a conduit to the nations eventually. Um, And as that plan is unfolding, it's taking a little bit of time, if you remember. And so now here we are, we pick up on uh, the age, really, of Abraham. He's 99, Sarah is 90, and God is making some amazing statements in this chapter. But some amazing statements he said before is that he believed, Abraham believed the Lord, perhaps most importantly, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And that's where we get this New Testament understanding that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And so now I just want to just prep all of us. Like as a believer, you're going to go through valleys. You're going to go through mountaintops. You've probably done that this week alone, just going up and down with the Lord. And all of it really is this preparation for our maturity. It's not for our comfort. We're going to get Jesus way wrong if we categorize him in the comfort Christ. He is not the comfort Christ. He is here to grow you. He is here to make you more like Jesus, which means you're going to have to die in order to become alive. And that, friends, is not a very fun process, but it is a freeing process. And so here we are, that same message being preached to us here out of Genesis 18. So here's what we see, right? We're going to break down three main things, three main movements in the text. And as we do that, I can't read them all again, but my hope is that we would discover one big takeaway from all three movements in the text. And so here's what I think uh, the Lord is showing us, at least for this church today, as we think about our unpredictable God. What is he up to? What does he expect of us? And I think the first thing that I see in the text that's unexpected, that's expected of me as much as it was of Abraham, is this, to seek to show hospitality. That's our first big takeaway. And and you really wouldn't uh, make mention of this except for the details in the Bible. 
that Abraham was showing some, some unique hospitality here. And I want to just be clear. It is the Lord. Like this is a theophany, meaning that it is an appearance of God in the Old Testament where God himself doesn't just send an angel. He himself is on the earth in some physical form, mysterious and unpredictable. And what does Abraham do to this mysterious and unpredictable? He knows who it is. At least he figures it out at some point. That it is the Lord, and for a long time I used to think, and maybe I still do, depends on the day, that this was the Trinity showing up, that it was Father, Son, and Spirit, and that these three visitors were somehow the embodiment of the Trinity. That's fine if you believe that. I, don't, I, don't, I think there's some textual evidence of that. I think the better textual evidence is that it is Yahweh and two, two angels, um, and so it's still collectively the Lord because he takes precedence here over the other two angels. You can get that from the next chapter where it says, and the two angels went on to Sodom. So you can see that there is an accompaniment here. But this, the Lord, nonetheless, appears to Abraham, and Abraham shows unique and significant hospitality. If you look at the details right in verse 2, he ran to meet them. He bowed down to the Lord. In verse 3, he says, oh, don't, don't pass by your servant here. If you will just wait just a moment, we'll wash your feet. He's going to serve the Lord. If you would just refresh yourself, there's refreshment here. He's going to bring a morsel there to help him alleviate any thirst that he may have had on his journey to again be refreshed. Goes on to uh, verse Six, Abraham went quickly. He's running out to them, and now he sees these unexpected visitors, this unpredictable God showing up at him. He quickly goes into the tent, and he says to Sarah, quick, make something good. And she does. And Abraham, he then runs to the herd, and he gets somebody there. He goes, man, take care of this calf. We need the best one we have, and milk it, and make sure we have everything prepared just right for the Lord who's here amongst us. An unpredictable God drawing near to, so far, a very, like, unpredictable faith. There's nothing here that would indicate that all of a sudden that Abraham uh, was good enough to, to somehow invoke God's presence down. No, God was on his way to Sodom, and he stopped by the tents over with Abraham. Again, we don't see this kind of big deal as far as hospitality is concerned, and still we start to juxtapose it against what God does in the next chapter where he uh, executes judgment over an entire region, really. Uh, and the prophet Ezekiel fleshes this out for us in maybe in an unexpected way. We know that Sodom and Gomorrah were judged for their sexual sin. What we may not understand is that they were also judged for their social sin. And Ezekiel actually is the one uh, that fleshes this out for us. Ezekiel uh, chapter 16, 49, he talks about Sodom and he says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. Uh, she and her daughters had pride. You want to know why they were judged? It was pride, arrogance. But also, they had excess food, they had uh, prosperous ease, and they did not aid the poor and the needy. They were negligent to the needs of their city, and God judged them. They were, what we'll see, very inhospitable to the angels. And you juxtapose the inhospitality of Sodom with the hospitality of Abraham, and you start to see the significance that Abraham isn't just here to flaunt his wealth. He's there to show the worth of he who is, he is hosting, 
But also their details are there to help us see, man, like God is justified in what's coming next. The New Testament is littered with us or for us for this uh, beautiful command to be hospitable just as Abraham was. If we would seek the Lord and seek to be hospitable, we will see the New Testament say this over and over again that we are, if we are to be a, a, a New Testament people, a, a, an Old Testament people, a, a biblical people, we have to be a people that seek to show hospitality. I don't know what you use your house for, uh, but if it's just for sanctuary, you're not using it right. Here's what the Bible says, right? Romans 12, 13, when it talks about all these beautiful commands about letting love be genuine, Romans 12, 13 says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Don't just show hospitality when someone asks you to do it. Seek ways to show hospitality. In 1 Timothy 3, a quality of an elder is that they are hospitable. In 1 Peter 4, 9, it says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. That's maybe my favorite one. I don't know how you do hospitality, but oftentimes in my heart, which leaks into my home, I like to show hospitality with a little grumbling. And it's not good. It's not biblical. The other thing that I think is being picked up on here in this episode in Genesis is that in Hebrews 13 too, it says, do not neglect it. Not just seek it, not just uh, pursue it as a mark of maturity, not just show it without grumbling, but don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. A.K.A., look at Abraham, our father in the faith. He sought to show hospitality, and there were angels amongst him, and he didn't even know it yet. If we would be a people that would use what God has given us for his glory in this way. I wonder what kind of change and impact we would have when we say our neighborhoods and the networks and the nations. Who comes into your home? Only the people that vote your way? Only the people that look like you? Only the people that have what you have that you just enjoy? Only the people that have kids your age? How is it that you invite people? Do you invite people into your home, not just functionally, but as a show of love and worth to the Lord who might visit you, and you might entertain angels unawares. Is, I mean, has that thought ever crossed your mind? Probably not. You have a whole summer now to entertain what might be angels unawares. I like the way it says it, so I'm going to keep saying it, unawares. Not underwares, unawares. What is your posture to your neighbors? Do you invite them into your home? And therefore, do they have a place in your heart? Consider how you love your neighbor with, again, with what's been given you by God. And so if you've been a part of our church past COVID, which is like half of our church, then you remember back in the summer of 2018, you remember that there was a summer challenge. Do you remember this? The summer challenge was to invite one neighbor into your home by the end of the summer. One, just one. Anybody do that back four years ago before you had COVID as an excuse? Yeah, all right, we got one, two. I got my hand up. I know we did it. There's probably more, right? They're on vacation today. That's what happened. Um, but nonetheless, four years ago, we put that before us to say, what would it look like to just practice hospitality, to act like we actually love our neighbor like Jesus called us to love our neighbor? So the summer challenge of 18 just became the summer, 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 summer challenge of 22. By July 1st, will you know something significant or, or surface about your neighbor? 
know their name, know where they work, know their, their favorite hobby. Do they like to kayak? Do they like the Astros? Oh, man, there's your in. Do they like Aggie baseball? You got a week to get them over here. Yes, but one, we have one neighbor that loves Aggie ba- baseball. Nonetheless, like, will you use this summer to practice, to seek, to show, to not neglect this command now of Christians of hospitality? By July 1, will you learn their names, something significant about them, their vocation, their hobby, their favorite sports team, anything, even if they're Cowboys fans, that you welcome them in? I knew that would get a few of you. Just a little bit. By August 1st, that's by July 1st, by August 1st, figure out a date in August before school starts. Invite them over. Don't just go, hey, sometime in the future, we should have you guys over. Hey, Friday night on the 8th, what are you guys up to? That's a little bit more pointed. A little bit more certain there with that type of intentionality. By September 1st, then host a dinner with your neighbors. Share your story with them. Share with them the hope, the reason that you have hope in the Messiah. Pray for your food. Don't back down from Christian uh, rituals and rhythms. Lean straight on into them. Pray for your food. Ask questions about their hobby, their workplace, the things that you learned about over the months. And ultimately, listen. It's not a time where you push an agenda. Instead, you get curious about their story, looking for ways that the gospel might apply. Just like you would talk about your kids, which we all do when we get to dinner. We all talk about our kids. We love them. We're in relationship with them. We have opportunity to steward their little souls in the same way. Do we love Jesus? Do we have a relationship with Jesus? Do we then steward what he's given us and then are excited to talk about it with those around us? Abraham shows us when he ran, when he went quickly, when he gave his best, when he did all things necessary. You don't have to, you don't have to do a big feast, like, but do something that would show an outward heart to the lost and dying world that lives next door to you. Seek to show hospitality. That's sermon number one. Sermon number two, then. And this is really where I think um, we have two questions that are put before us in the text. And the first one is, is, is this first or this second um, takeaway. Lean into dependence. Would you be a person who is dependent upon God? Or are we self-reliant? I think there's two questions that are being asked in the rest of this passage. The first one is, what can God do? What can he do? What is he capable of? And then the second question we'll unpack in our third point is what will he do? Those two things are often many times quite different. First, what can he do? Well, he can do everything. He can do anything. So we are called to lean into dependence here in verses 9 through 15, right? All of a sudden, the Lord surprises Abraham and Sarah. And I think this is where Abraham figures out it's the Lord that has just visited me. When he says, when the Lord says to Abraham, hey, where's your wife, Sarah? No one introduced Sarah. Sarah wasn't there to greet the Lord. That's not what we see in the text. What we see in the text is that she's off preparing. She's off hiding in the tent. She is away from the visitor, and the visitor knows that it's Sarah that's there. And where is she? We'd like to talk to her. We have a message for your wife, Sarah. And so the Lord surprises Abraham. The Lord further surprises this announcement of a baby boy that will be born at the appointed Time, that's a hint for what will he do? Not always in our time. Of course, 
We know that the details, again, help us see our takeaway, that the, the way of women had ceased, a.k.a. the Bible is very clear here, uh, she had already gone through menopause. There was no physical, biological way for her to have children. The way of women had ceased. Sarah then laughs to herself. The Lord knows that she laughed. My favorite part of this whole passage that I can't spend too much time on is that the Lord is going, oh, yeah, yeah, she definitely laughed. Yeah, we, we, we heard her. And she's like, nope, never laughed, never happened. And he still blesses her with this child. Salvation, again, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we get pictures of that, that she didn't deserve all of a sudden to have this child. She's still laughing in the face of God and his plan. In a beautiful way, God responds and says, now I still have to be gracious to you and merciful to you. What grace is shed in that little passage? But again, as we look at these takeaways, we look at kind of this summary of what's going on in verses 9 to 15, we would get some picture and some hints as to how we can explain a little passage in the New Testament. Tim, if you can bring up uh, 1 Peter 3, 5 through 6. This is not in my notes, so I'm going to have to turn there myself. 1 Peter, anybody know where 1 Peter is in the New Testament? Can you show me where it is, please? There it is, got it. 1 Peter... 3, verses 5 through 6. Now, y'all have had whole women's retreats based on this, this verse in this church, or at least whole women's summers. I wonder if you understood it the way that I'm about to unpack it, because I didn't until recently. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Well, how did she submit? As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. I don't know what you call your husbands at home but I've never gotten Lord Lance. <laughs> and you are her children. If you do good and do not fear anything, that is frightening. It's this passage. It's in Genesis chapter 18. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old. This is the only time that she says my Lord. And yet it is this point right here where it is used and is an example of how you should then submit and honor your husband, ladies. What's going on? How is what Sarah is doing in Genesis 18 a mark of obedience, a mark of submission, a mark of respect then of her husband, her, her Lord? Not the Lord, her Lord. Think with me. This is a promise given to Abraham. Abraham, uh, then this is discussed in a way that Sarah overhears this crazy plan that she's now 90 years old. The way of women has ceased with her. And I don't know um, how your family started. Actually, I do. Um, but if this promise is going to be fulfilled within a year, Sarah at the age of 90 and Abraham at the age of 99 are going to have to biblically know one another know one another that was an act of submission and of great and deep faith on behalf of Sarah to the point where she is trusting God's promise far beyond what she would ever hope or want in that point of her life it's in that moment that or moments we don't know 
there's no guarantee that they conceived on the first try, but they continued in obedience and in trusting of God's promise that at the appointed time, Isaac would be born. If that's going to happen, they have to be participants in God's crazy and unpredictable plan, as uncomfortable and as awkward as that may have been. I don't know what the background story was or what kind of conversations they had after the Lord and the angels moved on, but I can just imagine what goes on in that tent as far as conversations are concerned between husband and wife trying to figure out, okay, like God can do anything, but he wants to do it this way. That's challenging. And so I just, I don't know about you, I don't know what you've been working through over the last few weeks or few months, but I have had to fight hard to not have the same posture of Sarah. I'm just laughing at God's plans. Yes, God, I know you could do it. I know that you probably, though, won't do it. So really, why ask anymore? I've been asking for a long time. And you've chosen to nod, and so I'm just going to move on with whatever hope this was. And yet the Lord's visit to Abraham and Sarah as the unpredictable God, reminding us to lean into being dependent people on him, we have to then ask, what can God do in this situation? Because the story of Isaac's birth reminds us that God is capable of anything and everything. And here's the kicker, right? He wants credit for everything. He removes um, possibility from Isaac's birth. He removes human practicality and plausibility. He removes it all by waiting so that he can get all the credit for what will come next. And again, I just, I don't know what you've been running through and walking through, but I would just ask this, what have you given up on with God? Is there something that you see in the scriptures here that you're like, I mean, that's probably happens with other people. It's never happened with me. I've just been pleading with him for a long time, say 25 years or so, or however long it may have been, and he's never shown up or never done something like that in my life, and so, you know, like, I'm just going to quit asking. It's obviously a burden to heaven. What have you given up on with God? Is it that you would get married? Is it that you would become content? Is that you would find contentment in singleness? Is that your husband or your wife would begin to believe? Is that your child would, would all of a sudden start to repent and return unto the Lord? Is that you would actually make a disciple? Like you would actually see somebody come to faith in Jesus? Or, or what is it about uh, that addiction or that little babbling or dabbling that you've been doing on the side when no one else goes? And you just think to yourself, and I just can't get past this. It's a, it's a surrender. God's not going to do this. He's not going to show up in this way. Or, or maybe it's just not a, a, an addiction or something that you're dabbling in. Maybe it's that, that consistent and persistent tug at that second glass of wine at the end of a long day. Maybe it's finding too much identity in your work or in your kids' sports. No, is anything too hard for the Lord that you might overcome these things by his power and his strength? Yet not I, but through Christ in me. 
Is anything, that's what, the, that's what God says to a laughing Sarah, is anything too hard for the Lord in verse 14? Is anything too wonderful that God might not descend and stoop and do something marvelous and magnificent for his people? Is anything too difficult for him? What have you chalked up as too difficult for the Lord? Maybe it's not something circumstantial. Maybe it's something in the Bible. The more I talk to non-believers, the more dinosaurs are apparently the big stumbling block. Here's my answer to dinosaurs. Apparently, the one authority in all of life doesn't say much about them, so they must not be that important. That is very empty for many of you. And yet there's a lot of comfort in just making his things the most important things. And not making culture's things the most important things. That we would lean into the character and grace of God far beyond what a brontosaurus might do for our faith. I'm for real. Like, that's a thing. What about believing what the Bible actually says? Have you, have you, have you cut parts of your Bible out? The parts that are inconvenient for you, that tell you to seek to show hospitality to your neighbor, to love your neighbor beyond yourself, to, to die to self so that you can follow Christ. What about, what about the snake thing, like talking to a woman? Are you good with that? Are you good with a snake crawling up a tree and talking to a woman in a garden long ago? Is that something you really believe? Or is that too hard for the Lord to do? Is it too hard to make the earth in six literal days? Too hard to make the earth in a whole lot of millions of years? Too hard to, for, for God to, to make a, a, a literal man and a literal woman in a garden long ago? Is it too hard? Where is it that we have cut God out? Is it too hard for there actually to be a Jonah and a Noah and a big fish and a big flood? Or how about the things not of the past, if we're questioning those, how about the things of the future? Is it too hard for God to resurrect your body from the, from the grave? That you would have an ultimate hope in his renewal of all things? See, what don't you believe? Sarah is inviting us to no longer laugh at the miraculous work of our God, but to have a deep, resolute trust far beyond what we might be able to explain. So we seek to show hospitality. We lean into dependence. As Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. And then finally, and this is perhaps most difficult, we accept God's judgment. We accept God's judgment. More on this next week when we talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, but the text would seem to preview that they're headed into Sodom. The angels and the Lord are headed into Sodom, and the Lord basically says to himself, why would I not tell Abraham what I'm about to go do? He needs to be trained up, it says. Verse 18, Genesis 18. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation. And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he, may be, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. God reveals his plan for Sodom to Abraham because he knows that he is the family discipler in his home. 
If you don't think that your role as the main disciple maker in your house isn't significant, we go back to Genesis 18, where it is God himself that reveals to Abraham, I've got a plan, you're not going to like it in many ways, you may not understand it in many ways, but I want to tell you so that you can explain to your kids that my judgment is just and right, even when you don't agree, even when it's really, really difficult for you to swallow. The text tells us that the visitors set out for Sodom, but not before, again, God reveals his plan to destroy Sodom to Abraham. And Abraham then does righteousness and justice by praying and pleading to God for mercy. Oh, Lord, if you would find 50 people in Sodom, would you spare them? 50? Yeah, got it. 45? 40. 30? 20? And the whole time, God is listening to the prayers of his servant, answering the prayers of his servant, all the while knowing there aren't 10. And yet listening and responding as his servant pleads with him that though he accepts God's judgment, there are still some difficulties around it, and he pleads with God for mercy. And he does so based off of one thing in verse 25. Abraham, I'm going to go back to 24, I'm sorry. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for 50 righteous people who are in it? Far be it from you, O Lord, to do such a thing, to put righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth then do what is just? What is Abraham pleading with God to do? And what on, based on what? It is based on the just and righteous character of his God. He knows his God really, really well to this point. And he says, you're the just judge of the earth. Don't wipe away the righteous with the unrighteous. And this is really difficult to take we really start to think about it. We know this to be true. We know that God always does what is just, for to do otherwise would be a violation of his character. He is the just judge of the earth. And yet, the news feed begs to differ. Does it not? Thousands of people have died in Ukraine. Some might call them innocent. Or maybe you haven't followed the war in Ukraine. Surely you've heard of 19 children being killed in an elementary school in Uvalde some weeks ago with two, uh, two adult teachers on top of that. Surely you would read that news and go, Lord, are you not the just judge of the earth? What is going on here? When a good man dies and, and an evil man thrives, what is going on here when a faithful, beautiful family continues to struggle with infertility and yet an addict on the street gets pregnant by accident? What is up? I don't get it. I don't understand your judgment. I don't, this, is, this is just somehow. See, as I talk to nonbelievers, this is the number one. This is the number one reason why Jesus isn't good enough for them. Because we have no, or we at least have let on, that we have no good answers 
for the evil that takes place in the world? And I want to tell you, we have an absolutely beautiful answer. Every piece of theology, every piece of understanding about the character of God must run through the person of Jesus. And there is no greater injustice that has ever happened on the earth for any time other than Jesus to be sacrificed for your sin. So God apparently works through avenues that we don't quite understand, that an innocent, spotless lamb would be put to death for sinners. That's not just on behalf of Jesus. It is just if he's paying for something. And he did pay for something. He paid for you and your sin. He paid for me and my sin. When he, when he, when he hung on that cross... The justice of God was displayed when he paid for, his, for our sin with the beautiful sacrifice of his son. And so everything runs through that filter. So what's going on in the world? Why is it that seemingly innocent people die along with the wicked, number one? There's no such thing as an innocent person except Jesus. He was the only one. He was the only one that was innocent. And so circumstantially, we start to just kind of, what, what is going on in the world? And Isaiah would cry out to us. Isaiah 55, if you don't have this earmarked in your Bible, earmark it. When things don't make sense, when, when, when God himself dies on a cross, and that just doesn't make any sense to us, that the one who, who was innocent yet became sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God? Oh man, there's something far greater being displayed here than what we can understand with our feeble minds. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, declares the Lord. Neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. A.K.A., I know better than you. You ever said that to your kids? Hey, you just understand, you're not going to understand this right now, but just you're going to have to trust me on this one. I might, I might have done this before. You're going to have to you trust me. My, high, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And so when circumstances just seem to indicate, man, there is something off here. Yes, there's no one innocent, but also we're in a fallen world. Nothing works the way God intended it to work. That is the beautiful promise of God's eventual return when Jesus returns in the book of Revelation and it says that he is going to basically wipe out every enemy. That doesn't just mean people. It means death forever and he will renew all things sitting on a throne and he will invite us to behold it, to look. The great promise that I made long ago is now fulfilled. Romans 8 says that the creation is groaning and longing for the coming of the king, and we should join him when things just don't look the way we thought they were going to look. So this text, though, is more about circumstances in Isaiah 55, how God defines right and wrong about his judgment as the just judge of all the earth, and it is increasingly difficult to swallow in a world that has put ourselves at the center of how we relate with God because if he doesn't see things the way we see them, if he doesn't do the things that we expect him to do, 
I've heard it, if I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times, then he is not worthy of my worship. When you have your neighbor over this summer, prepare for that particular answer. When you say, so now, why is it that you don't follow Jesus? Well, I'll tell you why, because I've asked this recently to a non-believer. Why does he let little kids get touched? Why do little kids have cancer? Why are little kids? And it was all about little kids. And I don't have answers for those questions. But I do have broad, general understandings because the sin of man is evil. But the character of God is, 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 is good and beautiful. So what injustice, friends, have you perceived that God has allowed in this world? What quote-unquote injustice do you perceive God has allowed in this world or perhaps in your world? For some, it's, the, it's, it's circumstances that have been named above. For others, the rubber will meet the road next week, again, when we talk about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you go, well, I, don't, I can't believe in a God that does that. That's next week. For others, it's something far more personal, some greater disappointment. So the question really will be, do we trust God's judgment? Do we trust that he knows exactly what we need, when we need it? Do we trust that he is operating on a level that's far higher than we could ever imagine? And he sees the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. We trust in a God that sits high above, that ascended God that Aaron preached on just now two weeks ago, and we all were like, oh man, love that ascended God, descended shepherd. Love that little juxtaposition. But when the rubber meets the road, will we trust in that God who has come, who has taken on flesh? You see, you and I are not the first disciples to be disappointed with what we expected God to do. The first disciples wondered about God's ways. And if you remember, it's the prelude to the Pentecost when they said, like, is the kingdom going to be now returned to Israel now in Acts 1? And Jesus doesn't answer them. And he says, basically, it's not for you to know. But they wanted a local kingdom to be returned. And yet their Messiah suffered and died only to raise from the dead for the sake of a higher and better kingdom to be restored, not just to one nation in history, but to the entire earth for all time. So friends, what is too hard for the Lord? Cognitively, intellectually, we will say, well, nothing. He can do whatever he wants. And so, friend, then I ask the second question that the text then asks us, not just what can he do, but what will he do? And when he does something or allows something outside of what you expected, the true question here is, will we trust him? Will we trust him when he throws a storm into our lives that we weren't expecting? Will we trust him when we walk into darkness that we were not anticipating? Will we trust him when he just lets go of our hand like a good dad does eventually to help us grow up and mature? Will we trust him? Let's pray. Our Father, we want to believe in a God who is safe, who is predictable, who fits inside of a box 
that we've created. We want a God who's approachable at all times, who's my homeboy when I need him, who's my higher power when I need that. But what about the God who disappoints? What do we do with that God? What do you do with a God who's maybe just not disappointed us, but is unpredictable? Will we lean in in those places, in those dark, disorienting places, into a God who isn't safe, but is still good? Doesn't answer our every prayer in the moment, but is still righteous and just in his judgment. Beyond what we can see, beyond what we feel, beyond what we think, So this is where the beauty and the power of Pentecost has to become real for us. That the presence of God Almighty didn't just visit us in a tent one day long ago, now makes his tent our hearts, his dwelling place our hearts. And so Holy Spirit, would you help us see what cannot be seen? Believe what is beyond belief with a resolute, deep trust in the character of God that you will always do what is just, you will always do what is right, but it may not always be in our timing and by the means we would prefer. Oh, Holy Spirit, comfort us. Help us see that you are far better than we ever imagined. It's in Christ's name do I pray. Amen.